Thank you, Benjamin and worship team. Good morning, everyone. Thanks. I want to welcome you to our service. Be in prayer for Pastor Bob and Austin. They were supposed to arrive back yesterday, but because of the weather, actually in Germany, I think, was where there was a holdup, but they will be back. I think they're in the air now. So for those of you that don't remember, last week they left for uh, a trip to Rwanda and the Congo to explore opportunities of missions over there. A couple things. Real quick, I want to mention something this morning. If you're visiting with us, um, if you read the Bible, you'll see that Jesus had different levels of followers. There were curious people who were just kind of like, what's this guy about? Then there were some who were convinced, and then ultimately there were many who became committed. And it's sort of that way with becoming a Christian. You can sort of come and be curious and learn, and we welcome you. We want you to learn from the Bible, answer your questions, understand what you're getting into, right? But then ultimately to become a Christian is to make a commitment. You're convinced that the Bible's true, and then you understand that Christ died to pay for all of your sin. He rose again, and, and you receive him by faith. You, you repent and believe in the Lord, and you're what the Bible calls saved. You are forgiven. You become a Christ follower. Now, at this time, I want to ask if uh, you have your Bible to turn to Genesis 39. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people that will be glad to give you a Bible. But once you become a forgiven Christ follower, then you begin to become like him. Christ followers don't just get hell insurance. They then are transformed because Jesus loved us and died for us to living differently. And part of how that happens Part of how I grow as a disciple or a follower of Christ is to come to church. But that's only one piece, right? That, that's, that's sort of one way. It's sort of spectator and then platform. One of the most important things about becoming a, a, a disciple of Christ is getting connected, relationships. It is impossible as a Christian to grow and mature and become all that Christ has without other Christians in your life. So this morning we are offering what we call Group Connect. So after the service, if you go across to the Woodside room there, there's a whole bunch of tables over there. There's a lot of small group leaders. You're not making any commitment. You're just going over there to explore. There's all kinds of options. Maybe some of you just want to be in a men's Bible study. Want to gather with some other men and talk about what does it mean to be a Christian? Or there's all kinds of ladies' Bible studies, morning, afternoon, evening, just about every night of the week. There's a lot of couple studies. There's group studies. Uh, there's going to be a big Tuesday night regular Bible study here. So if you're here and you've been coming and you're not connected yet, we really want to help you do that. So don't just show up, go home, and not get engaged and involved. I promise you, if you want to follow Jesus, he said to become a part and to be connected as part of his body, the local church. So we'll do what we can to help you, but you need to take that step to get connected. All right, this morning, part of what we do as Christians is we gather for Bible study, but we also gather for prayer. Christians are called to pray together, and I recognize that in the early church, they were small settings, they met in homes, so they could pray together more intensely and more personally, right? If there was 10 of us in a group, we could go around and say, hey, I want you to pray about this and bear one another's burdens, be more in-depth, hey, I'm struggling with this, or could you pray about this, or I know somebody that needs this. Generally speaking, in such a large setting, we can't do that. So I hope that you're praying with someone. If you're married and you're both Christians, learn to pray with your spouse, even though it might seem awkward. We'll help to disciple you and teach you how to do that. 
But if you're not in a group where you're praying with anybody, it's important to find somebody to pray with. Somebody that'll pray for you and that you could share your request. But also, occasionally when we gather as one of the pastors, I want to take a few moments for us to pray corporately. There's a couple things I want us to remember today. First of all, we're told in the Bible that we should pray for our government. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says Christians, whenever they gather, first of all, they should pray for their kings and their authorities, okay? Now, I want you to think about it, like we're going, hey, um, we're in this crisis, this shutdown, this strike, this, this, com- this country is a mess. We don't just pray for our country for our own advantage. Like, Lord, please fix our country because, man, my stocks are going down. Please fix our country because we're planning to go to the Bahamas and this could mess that up. But we're praying, first of all, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a disgrace to any people. If you read history, God doesn't withhold his judgment at times. The Roman Empire rose, the Roman Empire fell, and a lot of it was due to wickedness, sin that had permeated the culture. So we should pray for our country to be free from the wrath of God. And part of how that happens is it says, Pray for your kings and those who are in authority. You don't have to like the president, but you should pray for him and pray for our leaders to make decisions that will promote what is right. Things like life, pro-life, not because we're of a certain party, but because God values life. Pray for justice. Pray for the oppressed. Pray for the poor. Pray about the immigration problem. So secondly, though, and this is even more important, the Bible says Pray for all men in your country because God desires all men to be saved. And the way that God saves people is through churches and individuals who are praying. God has chosen to use prayer. And so Paul says, pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But one thing that we need to understand is that one of the hindrances to people getting saved is the reason there aren't more Christians in America is because of those who call themselves Christians in America. So when Paul prayed, he said, pray that the church might be able to lead a tranquil life in godliness. So we're praying that we will not be persecuted. Right now, all over the world, Christians hide because if they met like this, they'd be killed, right? We're blessed to be free from the wrath of the government. But at the same time, the Bible says so that we might have godliness, And that's the biggest problem in the American church is there is so much ungodliness. The church is no different from the world. And so people are like, why do I need to be a Christian? They're just like us. So pray for our church that we will live different, that we will live lives of love and grace and holiness and boldness for Christ. In addition to that, though, we have people that are really sick. We have a number of people with cancer in our church. Some of you are ministering to them. Continue to pray for particularly uh, Dean and Rebecca, Ike and Dee, and also for Idy and Richard, as well as I just found out my daughter Bethany's uh, father-in-law just was diagnosed with bone cancer. So there's a lot of sickness. We also have a lot of marriages that are struggling. Don't, don't, if you're new here, don't be fooled and say, everyone else must have a great marriage because they're smiling. Smiling is no indication that they have a great marriage. If you could have heard them on the way over here, you might have had a different opinion. So pray for our marriages. And then we have, if you don't have to look around hard to go, there's a lot of kids here. There are a lot of young parents that are still trying to figure out, how do you raise kids? They didn't come from a Christian home. Pray that we will equip and disciple young people to raise their families for Christ, to raise another generation. 
Some of you have been down the road a little longer. The Bible says in Titus 2, the older people can train the younger people to love their wives, love their children, to have godly marriages. Some of you are in the midst of the brokenness of divorce or lost loved ones or wanting to have children or wanting to be married. So we're a church of prayer, and I invite you to join me for us to pray together. I'm just going to mention a couple of things. You pray about it, and then I'll close. First of all, take a moment to just personally thank the Lord for this country, pray for our leadership, and pray for righteousness in this land. Pray, secondly, for the churches in America to be revived, to be real. And may the Holy Spirit awaken people to live for Christ and not be lukewarm. Pray for the lost. Ask God to use Riverstone to save many people, not just here in church, but as we go out. And as we influence the world, pray that the gospel will spread. Even pray as the gospel is preached on Sunday mornings that people will come and believe in the Lord and be saved. Pray for marriages now. Just ask God to bring healing and discipleship. Pray for our children. Pray that God will keep them from the evil one and that they will choose to follow Christ and that this church will be a community raising kids who who want to follow the Lord. Pray for parents as well and grandparents. Pray for those who are facing great illness in their family that God would bring healing and mercy. Jesus still heals today as we pray. Father, thank you so much that we could pray together as a church. And now as we study the Bible, I pray, Lord, that you would bless as we read and study your word and help us to grow together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Genesis chapter 39. We're studying the life of Joseph as we finish out the book. Now, remember, the big picture is how God is bringing salvation to the earth through the people of God, the Jews. And last week, we saw this pretty pretty graphic chapter of Judah and Tamar. We left the subject of Joseph for a time. Last we saw Joseph, he was on his way down to Egypt. So I want you to begin by asking, have you ever felt abandoned by God? Does you ever feel like God either is, is far away or actually he's against you, he's upset with you? And maybe sometimes the, the more difficult time is when it's like a roller coaster, just when you feel like something good is happening, then, then something bad happens. And in many ways, that would be descriptive of Joseph's life because think about the roller coasters he went through. He was thrown into this pit, right? Certain death, 
but then he's pulled out of the pit. Oh, what a joy. Oh, my brothers changed their mind. But then no sooner is he out of the pit that he's sold into slavery. So now he's gone downhill again. He's gone through this tremendous trial. I'm going to spend my life as a slave and I'm not going to see my family. But then he's exalted, we're going to see, into Potiphar's house to a place of prominence. And he's doing all right. And then he's accused of adultery and thrown into prison. And then he's on his way down again. But then while he's in prison, God blesses him and he becomes second in command over all of Egypt. And so we're not the only ones that go through these, these times of being up and down. So we're going to begin in chapter 17, or chapter 39, rather. Let's, let's start reading. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So this fellow Potiphar, a prominent official, right, needed another servant. We learned from archaeology that there were a number of Hebrew servants. It wasn't, Joseph wasn't the only Hebrew that was brought down there to be a slave. But notice verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. And that's going to, that's going to show up four times in this chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, did Joseph know that at the time? Did Joseph feel that at the time? But the Lord was with him, so he became a successful man, and he's, he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, again, it's fun to do background, like look up. What did houses look, back, look like back then? What kind of an a, Egyptian home would he have been in? Now, his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord had caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now, that's really striking because... His master was not a believer. Remember, Egyptians had all kinds of gods, worshiping the sun and cats and you know, you name it, right? But he notices this Hebrew, and he must have known this much, that Hebrews only had one God, this Yahweh, this I am God. And his master saw that, hey, his God is with him. And I wonder, as you think about that, do, 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 would people ever think about, as they observe you at work and in your neighborhood or with your family, would they go, something different? Their God is with them, right? Now, particularly here, the Lord was with him, particularly in the way that he was blessing him. The Lord prospered what he did. Look at verse 4. Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Now, this reminds me, if, if you've ever heard Austin's, Pastor Austin's story, it's a fascinating testimony. If you haven't heard Pastor Austin's testimony, we have it online, but, but you could ask him just for a brief summary. But Austin the, 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 had made some poor decisions and lost his way and, and had committed a lot of embezzlement, was involved in drugs. This is his story. But after he got saved, he started working at this Christian camp called Camp of the Woods. And that's like a big camp. This isn't like Mo and Larry's backyard Bible camp. Like this is a multi-million dollar camp where thousands of people go. It has a, a huge budget of millions of dollars. It's not a for-profit thing, but it's not hickory dickory, right? It's a big deal. Now, ironically, the, the, the CEO, the director of this entire camp, one day says to, to Austin, I want you to be my right-hand man. Like, like you're going to be, you know right beside me, and Austin's like, and Austin said this, he goes, you got the wrong guy, like, do you realize I, I used to embezzle money, and now you're going to trust me with millions of dollars, but the Lord's hand was on him, and in the same way, here's, here's Joseph, and this guy recognizes, hey, his God is with him, he has integrity, and he's a blessing, verse 5 says, it came about 
that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Now think about that. Like, this guy wasn't the only one to have crops, but his corn was growing taller, right? Whatever transaction he did, his Egyptian stocks were getting higher. Whatever Joseph was involved in, the Lord was blessing it and prospering it. So the verse 6 says, He left everything in Joseph's charge. With him around, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Imagine if that was the only decision you had to worry about. You wake up, 9 o'clock, right? You just like, wonder what I'm going to eat today. That's it. Nothing else, right? Some of you are like, that's my life. No, I, if it is, <laughs> we need to talk, right? But think about that. But then we read this. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Well, big deal. Well, big deal. This word is never used of, of, of a man in the Bible. It's used to describe a beautiful woman once, but Joseph was good-looking. If he had the NIV, it says he was well-built, right? He was a good-looking guy. He was a stud, right? Now, verse 7 says, It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. Now, in, in, in the original language, in the Hebrew text, it just says, she lifted up her eyes at Joseph, right? There's lots of servants, right? But one day she was like, hmm. Her prayers no longer ended with amen, but now it's amen. And, and she begins to look at him. And I want you to think about this because this is important, right? I'm not kidding here. That all of us have to guard our thoughts and our hearts and our glances. It's okay. My wife and I, I don't know how you guys roll, but in my house, when we watch television, I'm not troubled if my wife says, boy, Troy Aikman, he's good looking. I don't go, what about me? Why, you know, is he better? You know, I could live with that. I, you know, sometimes I'll see a movie star on TV. I'll go, if you ever leave me, honey, I'm going after her if she's single, right? <laughs> we can laugh about that, right? And you can appreciate people's appearance, but the Bible teaches us that when we begin to lust after them in our hearts, right? That's when Jesus said, he that lusts after a woman in his heart commits adultery, right? And so Martin Luther said it this way, you can't prevent a bird from flying over your nest or, or from flying over your head, but you can prevent him from making a nest. And it's that second look. It's that, it's that longing look. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit, because we all have to deal with this. Holy Spirit might be speaking to some of you. You, you know, you're... You're looking the wrong way at, at, your, at your secretary or at your boss. And, and this goes both ways. This isn't, oh, bad, lustful guys. This time it's a woman, right? And it never describes her appearance, but, but she propositions Joseph. But it says, he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, with me around, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in his house. He's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he's withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife now he starts out on a horizontal level he says listen i mean think about this how can i do this to my boss i mean he's been really good to me i wouldn't do that to him but then he moves to the guts of the matter the heart and soul of what's going to keep us pinned down morally to do the right thing he says how can i do this great evil and sin against god right now, what's interesting is, you know, until you start learning how to read the Bible and seeing how things fit together, you're like, well, well, sure, I'm sure his mom taught him the Ten Commandments. 
Well, <clears throat> don't be too sure about that because they didn't have the Ten Commandments. This is way before the Ten Commandments, right? They didn't have the Mosaic Law yet. And yet, whether by oral tradition or instinctively in mankind's heart, they knew that to mess with someone else's wife is sin. And I don't know why in our culture sexual sin has just been considered a norm. Now, well, that's just it's not how we do it anymore. You could sleep with people before you're married. The Bible says marriage is honorable. The bed's undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And so Joseph was grounded in God. He wasn't worried about, am I going to get caught or what if I hurt somebody's feelings? And ultimately, we all have to realize that the only thing that's going to keep us from this is God's grace and looking to Jesus. I remember once on an airplane, a, a woman actually said to me, what would keep you from messing around on your wife? And this is what I said. I said, I hope it's because I love Jesus. And she said, oh, I, I thought you would say because you love your wife. I said, I do love my wife. But only Jesus is going to be ultimately the one we have to look to, to say, Lord, whether I were to get caught, whether or not, it's about you, Lord. You love me. So, and please understand, I'm not preaching as you dirty sinners. We're all, the Bible says, if anyone thinks he stands, be careful lest he fall. So we guard our hearts. We watch and pray that we won't enter into temptation. But Joseph is an example of, of virtue. He, he said in contrast to, to, to Judah, who was sleeping with prostitutes in the last chapter. Here we have a guy who's willing to, to consider God and make choices about character. Look at verse 10. It came about that she spoke to Joseph day after day. So it wasn't just once. This was a repetitive temptation. He didn't listen to her to lie beside her or even be with her. See, he was prudent enough to put some distance. Sometimes it's not just, oh man, uh, uh, I better not look at them. But, but he realized, I need to stay away from her. And the Bible warns us about this. It says, flee from youthful lust. Don't make any provisions for the flesh. <clears throat> now it happened, verse 11, that one day he went into the house to do his work. None of the men were there inside and she caught him by the garment and said, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. I mean, here's an example of, of like the most extreme temptations, right? And yet, he still, he gets it. The Bible says when, when it comes to sexual sin, every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But those who commit sexual immorality sin against their own body. Therefore, flee from immorality. The Bible says God will provide a way of escape, but oftentimes you might say, well, I don't see a way out. I don't know how I can get out of this. And if you just hung your head and prayed, you would look down and see two ways out, your feet, right? But sometimes we need to think beforehand and pray for one another. We need to pray for one another. And if in any way you, you find that your heart is going in that direction, God's using this passage, I hope, to call you back to a place of caution and, and prayer for one another. Now, you'll notice in 13 to 18, we keep reading about his garment. She caught him by the garment. He left his garment in her hands. Then she called the men of the household and said, See, he brought a Hebrew here. Now, my Bible says to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. First time I read that, I was like, what? What do you mean make sport, Right? This phrase, can, this word can sometimes be translated to laugh, right? So 
You brought this guy in to laugh at me. But it's actually an interesting word. It can mean to, to laugh, but it's used of that playful touch and caressing that, that can take place between a couple. In fact, this is the same word that's used in the, in the earlier book of Genesis when, when the, the king said to Isaac, he said, that's not your sister. You lied to me. I saw you making sport with her. I saw you, you don't hug your sister like that. You don't kiss your sister, right? And so she's, she's literally propositioning him, touching him, or, 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 or grabbing him, and, and now she turns it around and says, he came on to me, he's hitting on me. But it says he left his garments and fled, and, and so she kept these garments beside her till the master came home. You know, Joseph wasn't having a lot of luck with robes, was he? I thought about this, you know. The first time that coat of many colors, and I thought the dude needs to get a new wardrobe, right? It's like, this is not good. And I wonder what was going through his mind, right, as he was accused of this. We don't, we don't really know what he said. We don't know if he said, that's a lie. I didn't do that. She's telling a fib. She's a liar, right? All we see is this guy, like, like I was reading in one commentary, it said, I wonder what was going on in his prayers, right, as he's praying to God. God, why? Why do my brothers do? Why am I a slave here? God, I'll never see my family again. And then he begins to be blessed and rise. And now... What? Why? God, why am I being... I didn't do anything. But yet we see no hint of him complaining. We see no hint of him giving up, blaming God, or giving in to temptation. And I wonder what was going through her husband's mind when, when he comes home. She says, guess what this guy did to me? Because he'd been watching Joseph for a while. And he knew of Joseph's integrity. He knew that this was a man who loved his God. And so it almost makes me wonder, did he fully believe her, right? Or was he being a little bit of what we call obsequious? There's a word for you. Obsequious is when you become too servile and you just, you just give in to your spouse, even when you know that maybe your spouse isn't really right, okay? I see this a lot, where people will, their spouse will be flat out wrong, their spouse will be sinning, and they'll choose their spouse over Christ. They'll choose, hey, I gotta sleep with this person, or I gotta live with them, so I'm just gonna compromise with them, right? And so I wonder, because I, I would think if he believed this, he would have put Joseph to death that day. But instead, now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, his anger burned, and he took him and put him in jail. And again, I, I, I think about that, like, what, what did that jail look like? So I did some I just typed in, what were jails like back in Egypt? And actually, the Egyptians were one of the first cultures to come up with the idea of imprisoning people as a form of punishment. And they weren't the first ones with jails, but jail was just where you held somebody till you tried them and killed them or let them go. And so this was sort of a... a, 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 a and, I, and I wanted to know, what are the jails like? So a number of times, the word that's used later of this jail was a pit. They would imprison people, I guess, in some sort of caves and pits. And in Psalm 107, God says that Joseph was bound with fetters and the iron entered into his soul. So this wasn't like American jail where racquetball at nine, you know, television, get your cigarettes at the commissary. This was, this was hard. And he was here for two years, right? And again, I, I think to myself, he's in jail and he didn't even do anything. And I wonder what he's thinking and what his prayers were like. 
But notice verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. There it is again. The Lord was with Joseph. And he extended kindness to him and gave him favor. This is the Hebrew word chesed, the, the loyal, loving kindness of the Lord. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer, and the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. Now, that's weird. That's, that's putting the fox in charge in the hen house. Not only, like you talk about God's sovereign grace to you. Don't forget this. Unsaved people are just puppets in God's hand. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He could turn it wherever he wishes. I mean, this was a gamble, right? For this prison guard to go, Hey, uh, Potiphar, remember that guy that messed with your wife? I'm putting him second in command here. He's, I'm getting blessed now. You should have kept him, right? But when God works in someone's heart, even unbelievers, so don't, don't feel that your, your life is ruined and foiled because some unbeliever opposes you. Everyone's heart, and, and God can give you favor in the eyes of the most despicable person. And here we see it again. The chief jailer didn't supersize, supervise anything because... The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. And so we see this theme, the name Yahweh, the, 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 the God who, who is the great I am, four times in this chapter, Yahweh was with him. Actually, eight times in this chapter. Four times in this chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. And I want you to think about that as, as we read this passage, we go, okay, so what do I do with this? This is not Aesop's fables. Okay, now here's our moral lesson, right? But we, we learn, and this is why Christians, we, we're encouraging you and, and wanting you to learn how to read your Bible, be in small groups, learn how to interpret the Bible, rightly divide the word of truth. All Scripture is profitable for instruction and correction and comfort and edification and training. So get in the habit of, as we're learning, to always look for Christ. First of all, when you're reading the Bible, look for the Lord Jesus. Look for the centrality of his gospel. And so the first thing I want to do here is, is to remind you that there are, there are foreshadowings of Jesus here. Let me bring out a couple. First of all, notice how both Joseph and Jesus were humiliated before they were exalted. Remember Philippians 2? Have this attitude which, it, which was in Christ, who even though he was equal with God, did not regard equality with God something to grasp. He didn't go, I'm not going down there. But instead, he humbly came to the earth. And we call this his, his humiliation, where he, where he gave up the independent use of his deity and he, was, and he was rejected and beaten and hated and spit upon and they nailed him to a cross. But Philippians 2 says, because of his obedience even unto death... Therefore, God highly exalted him. And so remember that, that maybe God will sometimes humiliate us. But it's the humble that he exalts. And thank God that Joseph isn't the hero. Jesus is always the hero. Remember also that Joseph was a blessing to the Egyptians. God had said to Abraham, through you and your seed, you're going to bless the nations. But Jesus is a blessing to all the nations. We just sung, men from every tribe and tongue and nation will be brought into the throne of God because Jesus came. And just as Joseph was tempted and resisted, how marvelous that our Lord Jesus, unlike the first Adam who dropped the ball and fumbled, who hit the crossbar and brought condemnation to all men, 
the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, he, he endured temptation to the fullest without ever sinning so that he could go to the cross and pay for us. Remember that Joseph was falsely accused. So was Jesus. And so as you're reading the Bible, look for, for parallels that will point you to our wonderful Lord Jesus. But I want to talk about some sub-applications and then the main point of this passage. Some commentators think that this primary purpose of this passage is to teach us to resist temptation. And, and I don't. I don't think that's the point here. It wouldn't four times say the Lord was with Joseph if that was the main point. However, that is a point worth noting. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says this, Now that you Christians have received like precious faith, be very diligent to add these things to your faith. And the first quality that he says to add is moral excellence, virtue. That is not optional. If you or, or I are a forgiven follower of Christ, God says, now develop moral excellence, integrity, sexual purity. Among other qualities like perseverance and Christian love, he says, if you lack these, if you lack moral excellence, you're either blind, you forgot you're a Christian, or you better make your calling and election sure. So it is worthwhile to look at this passage and say, hey, here's a guy who's a good example to me of resisting temptation. And, and particularly, he suffered for it. One of the easiest times to give up our morals is when we do what's right and things get worse, right? First Peter chapter 2 says this, what credit is there if when you sin, you endure that with patience? But if you do what is right and you still suffer, this finds favor with God. How many times are we tempted to excuse our sin when we feel mistreated or we feel, well, why did God do this? I literally had someone tell me this this week. It wasn't somebody from the church here. They said, God did this and this. And they're Christian. They said, so I just cursed at him. Right? How easy it is to feel that when things go bad for us, well, well, we have a right to sin. Joseph is a great example to us of moral excellence. But, but, but keep that in the context. We're not just moralistic, therapeutic people who go, just do right and just try to be good. First of all, you won't even get around the lap the first time if you just try to be morally excellent without Jesus. I can't do that. The Bible says we do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't keep myself pure and walk with God simply because I'm going to try harder. But I can do that because my Savior went to the cross and I died with him. And he gave me a new heart and I'm a new creature in Christ. And I have the Holy Spirit and I have prayer and I have the promises of the gospel. And I have people that that ask me hard questions and hold me accountable. And I want you to pray, not just for me, but for all of us, that we will practice moral excellence, that we will strive to do what's right, to be honest, to stay pure. That's why we need to hear the word of God and encourage each other. We all stumble in many ways, but this is a good thing. This is a good thing to teach our children. Do what's right. Guard your heart. Secondly, it's worthwhile to say, hey, Joseph reminds me to practice patience and hope in suffering. Not a hint here that Joseph ever complained. Not a hint that he was bitter, disillusioned. He just, wherever God put him, he just trusted and obeyed. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage. Maybe you your job or, or something's going on and you're like, it's not right. God, why are you doing this? As opposed to saying, well, 
What would Jesus do? So pray that we'll have perseverance. Third, remember that as we trust and obey God, others are going to be blessed. God blesses obedience. Don't forget that, right? When, when, when you trust God and you obey him, you're going to be blessed. It doesn't mean everything's going to be great, but you will have an inward peace and a joy, and God will use you to bless others. Jesus said this when he washed the disciples' feet. He said, I washed your feet. Wash one another's feet. If you know this, you'll be blessed if you do that. Remember James chapter 1. He that hears the word and abides by it, this man will be blessed. Now, I want to be blessed, don't you? But I, want, I remind myself of this, that I also want to be a blessing. I want to be used by God to bless other people. And when we obey God, right? At the end of the day, when I'm... When I'm laying in my deathbed I'm not going to ask for my portfolio right how much money did I make or how big did the church get but I want to know that I was a blessing to my family and that 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 my kids or my grandkids will say daddy walked with Jesus till the end and it's not over right and so we all are learning to watch and pray and to ask God to bless us so that we can be a blessing to others for his glory. And so I invite you to pray for me and my family and for our church that each of us won't leave a legacy of being a burden and a blight and a black eye to Christianity, but a blessing because we humbly try to walk with Jesus. But let me leave you with the big picture here. The most important thing that I can take away from this story and I want you to just rehearse with me is this. God is with us even at times when he seems absent. Okay? God is with us even at times when he seems absent. Look at what's going on in Joseph's life. But the Lord was with him. But the Lord was with him. Did he know that every minute? Did he go, wow, this is great. I just got accused of adultery. I'm going to get a new job. Right? I don't know. But it's important. You might say, oh, I already know that, Pastor. I know that God is with me in prosperity and adversity. You do know that, but you and I need to be reminded of that. The theme of God's presence with us is a big deal in the Bible. The Lord of hosts is with us, the psalmist said. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. We just sang, we will feast, and there was a line in there when I go through the water. Isaiah 43, as the children of Israel were, were going to be oppressed by the Babylonians. The Lord said to them in Isaiah 43, Don't fear, for I've redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Remember that. The Lord is with you. And when you pray for that, I want you to think about that. What, what are you saying to God when you say, Jesus, would you be with me? Right? What do you mean by that, Lord, be with you? Because he already said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But I think what we mean by that when we say, Lord, would you be with me, is that, that I want your blessing. I want, I want to sense your presence, even in my fears. I want to trust you. David understood this. You know the 23rd Psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why, Dave, why? For you are with me. And so remember that. Remind yourself, whatever you're going through, maybe things are going well now, but remember, the Lord is with you. And if things go south, the Lord's still with you. Secondly, remember that while he's with you, his presence is often at work behind the scenes. See, this is why I need to read the word of God. 
One commentary said, God's presence is not localized geographically, and sometimes it's not dramatic or spectacular. It's unobtrusive. It's working behind the scenes kind of presence. So maybe you've sort of been lured into this miracle Christianity that every day you have to have a God sign and a God moment and a God miracle. And that's just not how life works. But I learned to trust him and believe that even behind the scenes, the presence and hand of the Lord is with me. In fact, when you think about it, the presence of God is very purposeful. He's orchestrating your circumstances. It's powerful and it's perpetual. It's always working. God is with me. But the last thing I want you to take home is to remember, okay, God's with me even when he feels absent, but I want to swap a preposition. He's not just with you. The Bible says in Romans 8, God is for us, right? Because if he was simply just with us, it might be his, his putting up with us, his toleration of our failures, like, fine, I'll be with you, but only because I promised. But I often regret that I ever saved you. That's not how God deals with his people. He's not just with us. He's for us. And if God is for you, who can be against us? Paul says he didn't spare his own son. He doesn't love anybody more than Jesus. He didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up to the cross. And Jesus, torn and beaten and bleeding and dying. Why would God let his son go do that? Because he loves us and he wants to be for us. So don't allow Satan to convince you that you're some sort of a spiritual misfit that God hardly can tolerate you and probably won't even talk to you when you get to heaven. God is for you. Now, he might be saddened and grieved that you're not trusting him, that you're not following him. But he's for you. He began a good work in us. He will perform it to the day of Christ. And at times when... When you feel like, man, where are you, God? Claim these promises. If God be for me, who can be against me? But I want to close by reminding you this. He's not for all of you. He's not with all of you. Like, what do you mean? I thought he was an equal opportunity. He is. But don't assume that just because you come to church that God is for you. Quite the contrary. Unless you come to Christ, he's against you. John chapter 3 says that when you believe on his son, you are not condemned, you are forgiven. But he that does not believe is condemned already and the wrath of God abides on him. You think Pigpen had a cloud over his head. You have the wrath of God over your head. And when will you awaken to the reality that unless things change, you will spend eternity away from Christ, paying the penalty of your sin. But that's not God's desire for you. It's not his will that any should perish. He longs for you to be forgiven. He longs for you to enter into a relationship with him in which you can start over. Your, your past is washed away. You find meaning and purpose. But you have to come to the Lord Jesus. It was one of his favorite words. Come to me. Come to me, you who are weary. Come to me, you who are thirsty. Unless you come to me, you'll die in your sins. Well, how do you come to Jesus? It's pretty basic. You can do it right now. You don't have to work yourself into it. You acknowledge you're a sinner. You admit that you are a sinner, that you have disobeyed God. 
You're not a good person. You're not a self-righteous person. Your religion is worthless. You come as a sinner, and then you're willing to turn to Jesus. You can't just get his hell insurance and go do your thing, but you come to Jesus. You're willing to be changed by him, and then you trust him. You believe with all your heart. You, 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 you cling to the cross, and you believe that when he went to that cross, he paid for your sins. He shed his blood, and he said, it's finished. It's free. It's full. It's done. The pardon is waiting. The Bible says anyone is thirsty, come to the water. Come freely. Drink. Come to the water of life. But you've got to come to Jesus. And so I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Right there in your seat, you can just say to Jesus, Lord, I get it. I'm a sinner. But I want to be forgiven. I want to be a follower. I want to be saved. And I want you to be with me. And if you're a Christian, then we pray that no matter what we go through, that I will trust him that I will stand and do what's right, and that through our church and through our families and through us as individuals, many others will be reached for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, maybe there's someone here today that's awakened and wants to come to Christ. Right there in your seat, I, I, I urge you to just tell the Lord Jesus, I do believe, Lord, I am willing to follow you. I'm willing to turn from my sin to trust you. I ask you to come into my heart and forgive me and change me into a believing follower. Father, thank you for Joseph. Thank you that you correct us for times when we wander. Thank you for your faithfulness in the spite of all of the things that he endured. You never left him. And thank you for his example. But most of all, thank you for Jesus that he never gave in to temptation. And he endured our sin on the cross so that we could be saved today. So send us out today encouraged that God is for us and he is with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't forget, we have Connecting Sunday back there. Get a chance to learn about small groups. Say hi to somebody you don't know. And if you'd like to pray together or you accepted the Lord, come and talk to me.